0: I always say it's not some mystical crime, it's the same types of crimes, just now in a new environment. That really is the hardest part to any of these cyber cases is actually making what we call attribution. Who is the one that's actually behind this activity?
1: You're listening to Jared Kubin, a Special Agent with IRS Criminal Investigation and Director of their Cybercrime Unit. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast.
0: One thing I wish I always would have known was innovate early. Start thinking about things that can be implemented and changed day one.
1: In this episode, we discuss the role of the cybercrime unit in the Internal Revenue Service, why the cybercrime unit is vital to the IRS's mission, some of the success stories of the cybercrime unit, and the importance of innovation. He is a special agent with IRS Criminal Investigations. He is currently the director of Cybercrimes. Jared Koopman, welcome to the Fraud Fighter podcast. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure having you. What compelled you to join IRS Criminal Investigations?
0: I've always had an interest in in law enforcement, criminal justice, and, and specifically as it relates to Finance and accounting My degree was in that that area, so I was really looking to put that to use at the federal level. Initially, I really hadn't heard of SCI, probably like a lot of other folks. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an internship. Starting off at age 21 22 you really have no idea where your career is going or what where it's going to take you. And and I was fortunate enough to start in this this agency, and then um, you know working right out of the Rochester, New York office, which is where I began. And I've learned a, a ton in my career. So really happy to be here.
1: When you became an IRS special agent, what training did you receive to become one? What's the prerequisite and what did you have to go through to get the badge?
0: Just as all other agents in CI and a lot of the other federal law enforcement agencies, obviously you have to have your, your normal education, college education. Um, and then I did the one year of an internship with CI, which gave me, gave me some really great insight into the agency and the mission. But once I converted, they call it converted to a special agent, I was sent down to Glencoe, Georgia, which is where the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center is housed. And just as all the other agents, we go through a general three-month criminal investigator training program. And that's really for all federal agents and all federal agencies kind of participate in that CITP, we call it. And then in addition to that, we had our add-on with additional three months our IRS agency has its own added three-month training that specializes more on the you know, tax and, and money laundering components that are really the nuances of our job. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to really get involved in a lot of different program areas because I was in a small POD, which is just a smaller satellite office within within the larger ones.
1: What does POD mean? Position
0: of duty. We had the ability to really become more involved in a lot of the other program areas that existed. So I was a use of force coordinator, became a firearms instructor, uh, defensive tactics instructor. Additionally, I was a cover agent or all of those program areas require additional training. So I would go to Glencoe again for defensive tactics, or I think we did one in uh, Florida on the beach at one point at the NASA area. And then I was in, um, New Mexico for firearms and then cover agent training provides another in-depth training to, to really get, get the nuances of running that program area. So all of these aspects you really learn as you have a good understanding of, of how the application is applied in our investigations. And then you can kind of continue there in that development.
1: A cover agent is part of the undercover operations. What does a cover agent do?
0: And so a cover agent, their main role is the safety of the undercover agents. So all things at the end of the day, that's the, that's the number one priority. Um, but in addition to that, you're handling a lot of the logistics of the undercover operation. So you do a lot of the planning, the uh, funding mechanisms, the administrative forms and, and requirements that are needed to, to actually get the necessary approvals and reviews for that undercover project. Uh, that's all handled by the cover agent.
1: What kind of cases did you work on as a special agent or as a cover agent?
0: I started off on general fraud investigations, which is very similar to a lot of agents that are coming in. You know, we We tend to give them cases that are really going to expand their ability to get out and do interviews, interact with the public, understand the financial components of a case. So, I started on general fraud, and it, I had a couple of like white collar cases, some traditional tax cases. And then I started getting into working some different program areas like OSADEF, which is organized crime and drug enforcement, which is a task force environment with DEA. And I was working some of those cases more from a financial component. You know, for folks that don't understand where our jurisdiction lies, is that, you know, IRSCI works a host of different criminal uh, statutes, mainly around tax and money laundering. And uh, the Title 18 components of, of money laundering really uh, reside on those specific unlawful activities, which could span a host of different criminal violations and lends us to become involved in pretty much every crime that exists out there. I was fortunate enough to very early on, gain a lot of great relationships with other partnering agencies. So I was working a lot of mortgage fraud cases, investment fraud, specifically with FBI and like I mentioned, DA on some of these other OCDF cases. But then I had a couple of these cases that lent to very large scale, global, national type levels um, that really get you to understand the, the nuances of some of these large scale investigations. One was the Kodak investigation out of Rochester. It was a $50 million kickback tax scandal that involved some executives at Kodak that were working with a third party and creating offshore accounts to funnel like proceeds from a tax benefit. Really, that was done over many years that has a huge impact to the community and and the city of Rochester and really a great case. It brought together Postal Service, FBI, uh, several other agencies and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office there, and just a, a great collaborative effort. Several other investment fraud cases that I worked that were typical like uh, fraud schemes where they would promise high rates of return and and really deliver minimal and really built people out of their, sometimes their hard-earned savings and life savings um, and just spent it, frivolous things. Those type of cases are the ones that that really drive you to work hard because when you see somebody putting their life savings in the trust of someone, takes advantage of them. You can't help but place yourself in that situation to have it all gone is just an unfortunate situation. And one that if we can hold them accountable and bring some justice and, and prosecution to that, um, it makes it all worthwhile.
1: You were talking about the Kodak investigation. Was that investigation where Kodak was doing some things in order to avoid taxes or was this the directors somehow funneling money to where at the end of the day, they get the money Not Kodak?
0: Yeah. So it was mainly the directors. There, there was basically a, a scheme between three people in cahoots and it was uh, the town assessor for Rochester, the, one of the big cities, Greece, and then a, an executive at Kodak and then a basically a guy that ran his own valuation business. And the three of them worked together where he would evaluate the business to be much less than what it was really worth to lower the assessed value. And then the town assessor was also in on it and would approve that, uh, that lower assessed value to save Kodak millions and millions of dollars. However, which sounds you know great for Kodak, but on the back end, they were working together and providing the contracts back to that assessor for you know usually like a 25 percent savings fee so however much money he could save he would get 25 percent. so it was a kind of a win-win for kodak that if he doesn't save us anything we don't pay him anything but when they're saving tens of millions and then he's getting his kickback uh that then was being split three ways between these three guys and being funneled to offshore accounts you know held in bahamas uh that's a little different story <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. Make sure I got this, the scheme kind of correct is that Kodak's going to pay property tax. So they hire this, another individual who says, I can get you a better deal on property tax. He kind of greases the uh, palms of the tax assessor in cahoots. And because he doesn't get 25% of the savings. And then the, so, so Kodak's happy. They gave him the money and then he yep. turns right around and, and has to pay people off.
0: Okay. That's right. And the executive kept steering the contracts and the business and the building assessments to the same assessor because they were he was getting his third kickback as well.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So during your career, where is the farthest you've traveled for uh, for work related purposes?
0: So, yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot of overseas travel lately. Um, so I've been to uh, Switzerland a few times, London a handful of times, The Hague. Scheduled to be in South Korea, furthest ones over into
1: the, the Europe area. During your career, you rose up to the rank of director of CCU, which is a cyber crimes unit. What is CCU? Cyber crimes consists
0: of our, our headquarters section, what we call the CCU, which is the cyber crimes units, which are two field office uh, locations that we have. They're fully staffed with 10 to 12 agents. We have one in LA and one in DC. And then we have our cyber support unit, which are professional staff, investigative analysts, and contractors. And the whole mission there is to provide a holistic view of the support capability, the oversight capability, and the operational aspect. We have the analysts who work right beside the agents. We have the contractors who work right beside all of them as well and start to really develop an understanding of what we're doing. And their primary mission is to work the most complex investigations that we, that we see in the cybercrime arena for IRS.
1: IRS is known for its financial expertise. Is cybercrime really just tracing the money or is there more to that?
0: Yeah, so it's a big part of it is tracing that money. And you know, one thing that we've been good at for the last hundred years is sticking to that mantra and really making that our priority and our, and our capabilities. Although cyber has really advanced our understanding and our environment that we work in, it's still the same principles. So, I mean, now, instead of looking for green book ledgers that accountants are keeping, you know, we're looking for distributed ledger technology on the blockchain, really tracing cryptocurrency and, and how it interacts with dark web and different marketplaces. So, I mean, that's, that structure really creates a need for our type of agency to really come in and kind of own that space.
1: So how does that fit with the mission of the IRS regarding tax collection?
0: Our structure is the central hub for that specialized personnel, not only within CI, but really within IRS as a whole. You know, we've been leading in this space since Around 2014-15 timeframe, we really started dedicating a lot of resources to that type of tracing and financial component when it comes to, to crypto or or even cyber in general and targeting those criminals. It's morphed into this new way of financial fraud. So I always say it's not some mystical crime. It's the same types of crimes, just in now in a new environment. The criminals are still deploying the same type of masking techniques and Whether that's tax compliance or traditional money laundering and other components, it's going to be a big wave of the future and is currently. You know, it's becoming more and more readily accepted and that type of activity is becoming more and more prevalent as as we see it in our criminal cases. So from traditional ID theft, we saw that for years as paper returns and taking advantage of the process. Now it's turned into more of cyber ID theft and deploying complex efforts to not only steal personal identifying information, but to sell that on the dark web and use artificial intelligence to submit false claims and all the things that go along with that, that we as an agency have to start elevating our work to meet the demands that are kind of existing.
1: I know recently listened to a lot of the successes from CCU Uh, are out there, particular with uh, the Bitcoin and especially welcome to video I can think of off top of my head, uh, whether it's a child exploitation site in South Korea. What kind of cases does CCU work?
0: It really runs the gamut. I think probably starting in 2014, 15, 16, even a couple years after that, we were really focused on what was prevalent in the space. And that was dark web marketplaces, and illicit exchanges so for those not familiar i mean cryptocurrency can be transacted or or transferred between fiat and crypto through an exchange which is you know sort of like the bank to crypto but when banks have a long history of developing their procedures and having proper oversight and proper anti-money laundering and know your customer components that are required by not only statutory requirements but you know regulation and regulatory components the crypto markets expanding so rapidly that we didn't have that you didn't have hundreds of years you had a year or two that things were developing so quickly that illicit exchanges were popping up and had no regard for anti-money laundering not requiring any type of information from customers and allowing money to move all over the world for unknown circumstances So early on, the heavy work was done in the marketplace and illicit exchanges. So you probably know of like Silk Road, Silk Road 1 and 2. There was Alpha Bay was a big drug marketplace. You mentioned Welcome to Video, which was a child exploitation marketplace that conducted all of their transactions completely in cryptocurrency. And then there were some of these illicit exchanges, which I mentioned, like Mt. Gox or BTCE these were exchanges that really just laundered funds early on we just had last year we worked a case on helix which was the first of its kind it was a mixer/tumbling service what they do is if you wanted to make a transaction and and really hide your information or that tr- financial flow of the transaction itself you could run it through through helix which was a service that would mix up the actual crypto with other coins that they had, so that it was hard to stay on that trail, which made it very hard for for law enforcement to find that link and keep that trail in the investigation. They were money laundering for the cryptocurrency, so that was a, a big win for us last year. And now we're starting to see prolific use in tax evasion, whether it's use of just like embezzlement or trying to hide income because they think that cryptocurrency is really uh, anonymous and they think that they can shift it to areas all over the world to really hide it from being taxed. That's really going to drive the future of, I think, compliance and IRS's main IRS and the civil functions and some of the work that they're going to be heavily involved in over the next several years.
1: How do you handle the exchanges being overseas, number one, and the number two is I'm assuming it could be a foreign person doing that or like in Helix, I know recently there at least it, somebody was arrested and indicted for being the money launderer for Helix. How do you handle all that when it comes to jurisdiction?
0: I've been saying this from for probably about five years now, but cybercrime's really changed the landscape of how we work with our foreign partners. Previously, yes, I mean you had those occasional cases that crossed international lines, whether it was foreign banking and trying to hide money, Swiss accounts, uh, offshore accounts, um, any of that type of stuff. But now with cyber crimes at which the speed of the, these transactions occur and the severity of some of these crimes, it's, a, it's imperative that we work with our partners even more closely. And we've done a lot with, we have a full-time CI agent in you know several different locations overseas. There are attaches that work very closely with our foreign partners on in those respective areas. We also placed a cyber attache at Europol, which is one of the hubs for really worldwide deconfliction and, and casework. What we tend to do is work with our partners usually they've been extremely gracious and, and willing to work with us when there's somebody doing something illegal either in their country or taking advantage of the the infrastructure that their country is offering, like in exchange so we tend to either work with the country and go through the process or you know those exchanges may have a a subsidiary some type of a in-state facility that's also you know doing work on their behalf that we can go through that that component as far as serving you know legal process and gaining access to records and then Once we determine where folks are residing, and that's that really is the hardest part to any of these cyber cases is actually making what we call attribution. Who is the one that's actually behind this activity? For my entire career, it was always, we knew the criminal and we were proving the crime. Well, that's got flipped on its head. And now it's, you know, we know the crime and we're trying to prove the individual. And in cyber, it's one of those things where every little piece of information may allow us to make that attribution to know who's actually behind the activity. And once we can determine that, that really drives jurisdiction and, and what we're capable of doing. And if it's in a city or a country that we have uh, really good relationships with, well, there's a lot we can do with our partners, like the South Koreans in that welcome to video case. we you know We were able to be on site as they executed warrants to seize the server. That ultimately was the the evidence we needed to to put the administrator away, and you know those type of cases. Uh, you mentioned Helix, something that was tied to an Alpha Bay drug marketplace that was worldwide, and the owner and administrator of Helix was sitting in Ohio, of all places. You know, laundering three hundred million dollars. You never know <laughs> where these individuals are sitting. We always feel like with time and with the right support, we're going to uh, we're going to put our hands on.
1: Tell me about a case that you're most proud of or something that made a difference in your career. You know, you hit on a couple
0: uh, already. I kind of bucket it together, whether I was an agent, then I was a supervisor, then I was down in D.C. working ID theft, uh, then going out to Chicago as an ASAC and, and eventually a SAC. At each stage, you have these cases that really reside with you for one reason or another. And I think we talked about Kodak and it was, it was definitely a huge case for that area. We also had another one there. It was called the Amico case. It was a home building scheme. Both of those, I mean, the underlying thing, there were true frauds that just took advantage of the community, especially a small community and small city of Rochester. And when you see something like that, that has a big magnitude and a dramatic effect, that can be overwhelming you talk about it a lot of the impact when you're in training, but to really see it Come to fruition when you're actually working these cases really is what keeps you motivated to do this type of work and and then going to Chicago when I was there as an ASAC we worked a ton of public corruption cases the need to work these cases and for us to be involved is obviously public corruption stems on kickback and these financial benefits that are given that will always reside as the need to ensure public trust and to prevent individuals from really taking advantage of their powers. So it was great to see there and then and um and then obviously coming to cyber you mentioned the welcome to video the other ones that I can think of were uh last year we had three terrorism financing takedowns they're all campaign related where terrorism groups were actually looking to issue campaigns online receiving cryptocurrency and keeping that active to fund some of their their activities and Ultimately, shutting down those wallets and seizing those wallets and all the money eliminates their capabilities. We always call it, you know, chop the head off the snake. I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you don't strip them of their assets and their and their money that they're they're able to continue, there's just going to be another group kind of that pops up in place of it. Those are the cases we want to work. I mean, those are the the cases that really give you that sense of moral gratification and doing the right job. Yeah, I think those were would be kind of a good run of the, the cases that can't stick in my mind
1: are there any resources or training that that have helped you along your journey that you can share with others
0: but well, one thing that i've really learned is the resources available outside government really pointing to academia and private industry and public private partnerships with a lot of these entities vendors independent groups They're tremendous. I mean, there's great wealth of knowledge uh, that really resides in this industry, whether it's cyber, whether it's in anti-money laundering in the banking community. I mean, I've met some phenomenal people, worked with some really great organizations, National Cyber Forensic Training Alliance, which is NCFTA. The Blockchain Alliance, I know, is another one that really is made up of a lot of different entities that just want to... Help and in, in terms of blockchain uh, advancement, um, and then we work with a lot of our tool vendors. You know, a lot of the vendors that we procure tools from—they're the brightest minds in that area. So for us to think that you know we can develop and and learn more than the people that are living and breathing it every day is kind of counterproductive. We should be really partnering with them, taking advantage of their skill sets, and learning from the experts that that reside in the ecosystem and. And really, you know, understand that
1: development. In episode eight, I had a podcast interview with Jonathan Levine from Chain Analysis. It was pretty interesting.
0: Well, Jonathan's a great partner. Chainalysis is a phenomenal company. We've been using them for a long time. And I remember Chain when there was literally 10 people in the in the company, and we were partnering with them working cases they have grown to, you know, 150, 200 employees and we rely heavily on them and a lot of our other partners whether it's CipherTrace, Elliptic, TRM, I mean they're all great industry partners, they're they're all trying to do the right thing. I mean they all believe heavily in in the idea of crypto and blockchain and they want to see that growth. At the same time they want to make sure that they're creating an environment and maintaining an environment that's, you know, weeding out the, the criminal activity or trying to put parameters that are able to catch the criminal activity. So, yeah, the work they do is, is extremely important.
1: I know you started your government career early in life, right out of college. What do you wish you had known when you started? If you had sit in front of a bunch of recruits today, and what would you tell them that you wish you had known when you started? I wish i
0: knew of all the opportunities early on um, that ci really has and it would make me a better agent and uh, i guess just an overall better ambassador or manager for the agency you know early on you're so focused on and probably rightfully so you're so focused on learning the job you know working those few cases that you have but there's a much larger component there that really you know the work that we do on the grander scale, um, and some of the efforts that are going on all over the agency. We have some really bright minds that I didn't realize I didn't really tap into the resources that were afforded to you uh, at an early stage. You don't know what you don't know. So I mean, there's a lot of components even within the agency, uh, within federal government that you can really. You know, tap into to take advantage of to make your job and your life a lot easier when it comes to trying to work some of these cases. Um, The other is to continue to always think about innovation. Going through, as I took on higher and higher uh, positions of management and leadership, you start to realize that you can really make a difference. And all it is, is you need good ideas. You need the right people in the right places to make impact. And You know, we talk a lot about innovation these days and we see it more in the tech side with cyber, but it applies everywhere. And it's like, one thing I wish I always would have known was innovate early. Start thinking about things that could be implemented and changed day one, because it may take several years to get something pushed, but you may be hanging on to that idea that we should have started 10 years ago and we'd be so much better off as an agency now. Yeah, that's a few things I wish I would have known.
1: Looking back on your career, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity you had?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'd say I wish I would have known Bitcoin was going to hit 60000
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was actually uh, detailed to your CCU unit, oh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, it, I was always fascinated with Bitcoin, had a chance to go up to DC for many months and work beside your guys. And just for kicks and giggles, I'm like, ah, well, I'll just put some money in Bitcoin and man, a little bit of Ethereum and just play around with it and just watch the blockchain move and my, you know, wallets and just kind of get an idea of how it works and the software works. And I put a hundred bucks in just for kicks and giggles, right? Well, now it's like $400, $500. It's ridiculous. And I was like, man, if I only a year and a half ago or two years ago would have put in 10000 be great, but no, I didn't do that.
0: Myself and uh, actually uh, a great agent, Chris Janczewski, who actually worked the Welcome to Video case and a few of the other cases that I mentioned um, out of our CCU. I was the ASAC in Chicago, and he was one of my agents uh, out of Indiana. And at the time, we were purchasing coins in 2014 at roughly about
1: $400. Yes. I remember we had training, and it was like $300 a coin.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, and we would uh, we would buy some then, and just to understand the technology and figure out how the wallets worked, and establishing the wallet, and transferring and spending it. So uh, definitely a missed opportunity. I mean, I I own some now, nothing to the extent that's going to make me a, a Bitcoin billionaire, but it's uh, you know it's one of those things that ah oh, that was a that was a missed opportunity, especially being involved so heavily in the in the uh, space, but. Yeah, I mean I just I hang on to it now, especially since I don't want to transact in it and create a taxable event. <laughs> so I uh I just have the long term long term holding. I'll be a, a holder for, for a while.
1: Your tax return now, I think is it this year or last year, has a check the box, yes or no, have you been uh engaging in Bitcoin trans- or cr- cryptocurrency transactions?
0: Yeah, and that was started last year. We had the the check the box and and uh yeah, now it's There's much more regulation and and, uh, guidance around, you know, what actually needs to be reported. And, you know, they came out with the the airdrop and some of the other regulation and guidance. It's definitely an area that's not only complicated, but, you know, one that has a lot of different nuances, whether it's being held for an investment or being spent or when it's earned. So there's a lot of nuances that you really got to be aware of as a, a crypto supporter. So. No, there are big mistakes. I mean, seriously, there's there hasn't been any any big mistakes. I think I think mistakes are good. They allow you to grow and learn. So it's um you know it's like that innovation. You have to be creative and understand that uh, there should be failure associated. So I mean, we always talk about you know fail fast and, and innovation, but you know we're seizing opportunities as an agency to lead in the efforts of crypto tracing and and things of that nature and formulating a, a new venture a new structure it's called the um, advanced collaboration and data center that's going to be in virginia that's really going to hope to address the more complex criminal cases so taking the ccu concept that task force concept and growing on it and making it a little bit bigger of a scaled up version yeah i, I never look back i don't question decisions i think uh, you make the best decision that you have with the set of facts in front of you and uh, happy kind of how things work
1: out. Do you know if there's any movement regarding the check in the box of cryptocurrencies considered a false material item, just like check, not checking the box on a foreign bank account. Is it going to be the same type of uh, weight given to it as a false material item?
0: Um, no, I mean, it's definitely you're signing that, that, that return under penalties of perjury so I mean if you're taking it's one aspect in an in a an over act in terms of like evasion so if you're not checking that box and signing that return and you know very well that you know you have a significant amount of income that you're making in crypto or that you're transacting in crypto or sending crypto overseas to remain hidden from U.S. authorities you know, that's all going to be a problem. And I think there's, there's still a lot of growth on both the IRS and in public on understanding the nuances of how it gets applied for tax purposes. But, you know, we continue to work in, in the IRS to address that. But yeah, at the end of the day, you got to be comfortable when you sign that return that, you know, this is, uh, this is accurate.
1: Very good. Very good. Thank you, Jared. Are you ready for the final four questions? Sure. What is your biggest motivation now?
0: Well, I think it's two things: preventing criminals from finding the new ways of taking advantage of shadow environments or the technology itself to commit crime. Driving into new areas here with with CI when it comes to to cyber and whether it's national security matters or human trafficking and child exploitation or terrorism financing or tax evasion. You know these areas are critical not only to the well-being of of our nation and the people, but also keeping that that confidence, you know, in what we're doing as a government as a whole. And then the other aspect, what motivates me is we got some tremendous people that we work that I work with and around and part of my team in CI, and and it's exciting to be a part of change. And I think there's a lot of change happening in the sense of uh, some restructuring, reprioritization in terms of what we're doing. And being a part of that, especially at a higher level, at a leadership level, you stay motivated. You know, you stay like uh, excited about, you know, waking up and, and trying to get something done that's going to add value to, you know, the next hundred years of, of CI's legacy. So,
1: what book or books have changed your life or thinking? What would you recommend?
0: I'm a big fan of Jocko Willink who's a navy seal, he's written some really tremendous books. Two of them that I read, uh, Extreme Ownership and uh, Discipline Equals Freedom. Two really good ones that that he writes he, and, and it's a mindset, way of thinking. Kind of piggybacking off of your last question about motivation. I mean, he talks a lot about motivation and a lot about don't expect to be motivated every day. You got to really kind of make things happen and don't count on it. You know, you really have to count on discipline. You have to be disciplined in your mind, disciplined in your your way of thinking, and that will lead to small wins, small successes, and then leading to a motivated mindset. I mean, all ty- all those types of things speak to your internal process of of kind of how you how you function. But yeah, I think those are two two great books. Recommend highly.
1: Share something that you've purchased in the last twelve months, less than a hundred dollars, that you enjoyed or made your job easier. If it's good enough for Jared, it's good enough for the rest of the world. What would that be?
0: Other than Zoom, gov licenses, so I could actually see somebody in the last year and a half. Man, I don't. I I think uh, you know you got to have stress relievers. So I mean, from a job perspective, definitely the the technology, the mobile technology, has enhanced us uh, tremendously to stay connected, do our job efficiently. From a personal perspective, I mean, whatever kind of interests you, I'm into a lot of different hobbies. Recently picked up a, a new rifle that um, I enjoy shooting and practice target shooting. So, I mean, you know, stuff like that. Find your outlet. Find that thing that helps your mind to to really stay focused. Two easy ones that I think of.
1: That rifle is not less than $100. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it must have been the bullets.
0: Don't tell my wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you had to do something else what would you be doing you got fired today you have to walk out from that job turn in your badge and a gun what would you be doing
0: i love to stay busy first off and i already mentioned i have a lot of hobbies so i love to work with my hands so i mean coming from a you know contracting family i think something in the space of, of creating you know building i love to work on classic cars i currently teach uh brazilian jiu-jitsu and mma's so, That's a big part of kind of staying happy and keeping that that mentality straight. Yeah, someday that that may be a reality. (laughs) Who knows?
1: Well, Jared, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your service and best of luck as director of CCU. you got a great brain trust up there, a lot of motivated people, and I appreciate everything that you do and they do. I really do appreciate your time.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.